0: I'm Simon Marion, and I'd like to welcome you to the second episode in my new podcast series, Mind Matters. This episode, uh, I'm talking to an amazing lady called Tamsin Aster. Uh, She is a PhD psychologist, and she is, if you look at her website, TamsinAster.com. She is your chief habit scientist, and she helps busy people organize themselves so they have time for what they want and need and time for fun. Now, her story is about uh, several levels really. She talks about her son being diagnosed with uh, cancer at the age of two, divorce, and how her life has transformed since then. So I'd like to let Tamsin introduce herself, and explain, and then go into her story, and I hope you get so much from it like I did. So Tamsin, thank you so much for uh, being a part of the podcast. This is, I mean, your story is going to uh, knock the socks off most people, I think, and, uh, and give them uh, a wealth of experience and resources that people can take away because it's it's not your everyday thing for most people, but it's, you certainly, you lived it, came through the other side and bounced back all the stronger for it. So yeah, more power to you.
1: Thank you, Simon. I'm super excited to be here.
0: So, why don't you, I think it's best for you to kind of tell your story. And if if you don't mind, I'll just ask questions as we go along. um, And yeah, let's just go with the flow.
1: Sounds great. So, um, my name's Tamsin, and um, I'm a Brit, but I live in America. And in 2008, so just under 10 years ago, um, my son, my second son was two and he had started to develop some allergies and he had developed an allergic reaction to um, nuts, to walnuts, to peanuts, to tree nuts and we'd got him tested and we started carrying around an EpiPen. And he was one of these little chubby, blonde, blue eyed, very pale skinned little boys. <laughs> um, and then he had an older brother too. And during the summer of 2008, we ended up in the emergency room in casualty a couple of times when he had had these two extraordinary spells of puking up every fifteen minutes for six hours. Oh. And each time we went to the hospital, they, you know, they'd look and they'd go, He's probably got a stomach ache, he's got the flu, you know, and they just sort of, you know, they kind of, you know, sort of poo-pooed around it, but didn't really take us very seriously. And the second time after it happened we pushed for a few more tests, and they thought they saw a lump, but they thought, oh, it's probably poop, like, he probably just, you know, he's a little toddler, he's running around, he probably hasn't been to the bathroom, and they sent us home. And we just thought, you know what, like, this doesn't feel quite right, you know, because the symptoms keep coming up again, and we sort of started to wonder, is he just one of these, like, really allergic little kids, you know, that becomes allergic to dogs and to wheat and to flour and to eggs and to, you know, orange food dye and everything. So we went to his pediatrician and said, okay, look, something's going on, we feel really uncomfortable about it, we've ended up in the hospital twice, can you start running some tests? So they wrote out a battery of tests, you know, and they were going to do poop tests and blood tests and urine tests and skin tests and the whole array of them. Yep. And the first thing they suggested we do is go and have a, um, an ultrasound because one of the things that can happen is when your intestines start to telescope over each other, So they kind of corrugate on top of each other if they constrict the tissue starts to necrotize it starts to die and so they thought let's just see if we can rule that out and then we'll go into all of the other allergy testing so they sent us off for an ultrasound it was a thursday afternoon just after labor day in september of 08 and we went and had the test he and i left my son jamie and i and we were driving home and we got i got this call and they said We're 90% sure it's interception this thing when the intestine telescopes you've got to get to the ER right now because if that's what's going on they need to do surgery before his intestine starts dying so I was like holy crap okay strapped my kid in the car seat drove to the ER got there and this battery of tests begun so they did another ultrasound they did blood work they did um a cat scan they just kept testing and testing and testing uh, my then husband, I'm now divorced, my then husband came in and spent a few hours with us. Then he went back home to look after our four year old. Finally, at about 11 pm, we'd been there about six or seven hours, the nurse came in and said, The pediatric oncologist wants to talk to you. And when you're standing there and your baby, you know, is asleep finally after all of these tests, and the nurse says, the pediatric oncologist wants to talk to you, you just like you stop, you know, I just remember my mouth dropping and just standing there going, (sighs) and the oncologist came in and he was this really sweet, grey-haired, like grandfatherly figure, you know, who must, I mean, it must be horrible to do work like that, right? (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. you know, I mean, just, oh, and I was like, look, I need to leave the room because I don't, if my, I don't want my son to wake up and see me, you know, so I walked out the room, he was asleep, and he said, we've got to run one more test, but I'm, you know, 99% sure that your son has cancer, and I remember just standing there in this hospital Thursday evening. You know, everybody moving, it was in, it was in the ER, you know, so there are beds, people being wheeled in and out, and nurses, and carts, and just all the busyness of a, you know, of a big, you know, thriving city, you know, emergency room. Yeah. And all I could think of was breathe. Inhale, and exhale. Inhale, and exhale. Like, that's all you can do. <laughs> all you can do
0: is breathe, right? Yes.
1: <sighs> so that happened. <laughs> And then um, the hospital was really sweet. They tried to get me on to do an international phone call so I could call my parents who were back in London. Couldn't get the phone to connect. Um, and um, I eventually started texting my brother and it was about 4 a.m. and my brother at this point was doing the, um, you know, the, the city banker life, you know, so was, you know, had his phone, his Blackberry, you know, on his hip 24 <laughs> hours a day in case his boss needed him, you know. And I texted him and I was like, Tobes, Jamie has cancer, and he immediately called my parents. My mother was on a flight within four hours, and she lived with us, and my father came a few days later and lived with us for three months, which was phenomenal. Um, So, yes, so he was diagnosed with cancer the next day. The next day, we went through the Friday, and they did all of the extra battery of tests, and we started that whole process.
0: Wow. Yeah, that kind of... I would imagine that brings your world to a halt.
1: Yeah, it, it really does, you know, because he was this, you know, sweet little bouncing two-year-old boy, you know, and you... So often when you think about cancer, you think you know, you've smoked cigarettes for years, you've drunk too much alcohol, you've got a genetic history in your family of breast cancer, you know, so like, that's, you know, that's so often the sort of mentality, you've got skin cancer, you didn't, you know, you went for the sun too much. So often, there seems to be that concept of either sort of adult personal, you know, responsibility, quote, unquote, where you've you know, made life choices that have contributed to it, or yep. it's some just sort of bizarre genetic fuck up, you know, that has created this shift in the way your genes are reproducing. And you know, when you look at a two year old, you're like, how how like they've been alive for so little, you know, just a few hundred days. Like, how is yeah. this possible <laughs> that, that this have kind of gone have gone wrong already, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean I mean I can't I've never experienced anything like that with my kids thankfully um but I know I mean my I can have a a, a small sense of how that is from uh, my son having a, a virus when he was only eight eight weeks old and I that so I kind of I can I can relate to it to some degree I suppose I mean it's how when it's cancer how do you try to make sense of that and 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 process that how how did that how did that come about? Obviously, you, you, you mentioned you kind of you had to pause and breathe, and you you actually consciously did that. Right. What what was it that sparked in your mind that you that you even did you, you did you catch yourself holding your breath? Was that
1: <laughs> right? No, I mean it was really interesting because I had just finished my first yoga teacher training about three weeks before, and I'd been teaching yoga for a few weeks. And you know when you learn to teach yoga and you've been practicing yoga, it's often the very sort of you know, quote unquote, superficial. Be here now. Be present. <laughs> breathe. You know, all the stuff that we wear on our T-shirts. You know, when we get a yoga class, and you see like all <laughs> over Instagram, right? You know, and I remember standing there going, "Oh my god!" Like I actually have to live this now. I yeah. have to to actually embody what I've been preach been preaching, <laughs> you know, from the from the yoga floor, and right. actually really do this, and not just talk about it, but actually do this. And my one of my teacher trainers, both of her parents had died of cancer. And she'd talked about how, you know, meditation and yoga and stuff had been so crucial in her, you know, coping with, the, with this period. And yeah, so, yeah. you know, I think it was very beneficial that I'd just finished this first training and was really, you know, deeply embedded at this point in a daily meditation practice. And so my first thought was, I just need to stop. I just need to breathe. So that was the first stage of it. And then you know, in the past, when things had gone wrong in my life, my tendency had been to look back and go, what did I do wrong? You know? So my first thought was, did I stand next to the microwave too much when I was pregnant with him? Did I, like, should I not have got on that airplane when I was pregnant with him? You know, like, and you start going down this, like, what did I do wrong? How did I cause this? You know? And I was one of those, like, you know, I breastfed my kids until they were like 20 months. I made green, green Puree for them. Like I went to the music classes. I used swimming lessons. I did all the stuff you're supposed to do. You know, I was like, I'm being attachment parenting. I wear my babies. <laughs> you know, all of the <laughs> stuff. That, you know you're supposed to do to protect your child and like give them the best start. You know, I did all that and was like, well, like what? Like this is not supposed to go wrong. And what was really fascinating for me, Simon, I think was that because I'd just gone through this process of training in yoga and meditation was I caught myself, you know, as I started down this path of sort of self-flagellation, I was like, this is not going to help me, you know, parent him. This is not going to help me parent his older brother. This is not going to help me be a wife. And this is not going to help me navigate through this shitstorm. If I sit there going, woe is me. What did I do wrong? How did I create this? You know, I've got to just look at it and go, this is what is. How are we going to manage this and move forward? I
0: think it's amazing. It was impressive to catch yourself so early under those circumstances. And I mean, that must have been kind of, a key moment for you, really, I suppose, in terms of how you managed yourself and your life ongoing through from that moment
1: it was, and I think it was re- what was really fascinating, and I think it's one of those sort of um interesting kind of you know uh, uh, somewhat gender cliches, but my ex husband wanted to fix it, you know, of course, right like this is like you know you want to fix the problem. And I remember um, the second or third day, the first three weeks, my son didn't leave the hospital. And um, we made the decision that he would never be alone, that there would always be someone with with him in the hospital who he knew. So it was either me, my ex-husband, or one of my parents. We made this decision straight away because he was so little. Um, And I remember pacing the halls one day at about four or five in the morning, and um, like looking for a vending machine to get a cup of coffee. And I was on the phone to my dad in London who hadn't yet made the trip. He, My mum was with us and my dad was sort of trying to, you know, shut down their lives in London so that he could join us too. Okay. And And I was going my damn husband is telling me I need to go to a psychiatrist and get sleep a prescription for sleeping pills because I'm not sleeping you know and I was ranting at my dad about this and I was like I think it's perfectly normal not to sleep when your child has just been diagnosed with cancer there is not something wrong with me (laughs) I was going into this whole like I am not broken, I do not need to be fixed, I do not need sleeping pills, you know, this is my way, my mind and body's response to this horrible shitty situation, which is that I'm not going to sleep well, you know, and I knew he was, you know, that Tony was doing this out of love and care and he wanted me to be well slept, so, but, you know, it was one of those sort of interesting ways in which you know, that sort of initial reaction to the situation, you know, his was like, okay, you're not sleeping, you need to sleep, you know, and was trying to yeah. fix everything. And I was like, I need to let all of this stuff come out. I need to feel the anger, the sadness, you know, and then, and then let it go and be as efficient as I can be.
0: Well, uh, yeah. Cause I mean, you know, exactly. If you hold in all that stuff, it just eats away, doesn't it? And then, yeah you it, it chips away and it undermines you as you go along and you become what well, less and less resilient i think is probably
1: yeah
0: other people in other kind of you know really stressful situations in their life and i think if i know a lot of people would have loved to have had your insight much earlier in their <laughs> in their little um adventure in life instead of it taking a lot longer for it to for the kind of the penny to drop for them but it's I you know this is and this is kind of the the reason behind doing this podcast to take these little gems from people like yourself and, and put them out there so other people in similar situations can hopefully take them on board and use them in a way that's right for them because Mm. it's invaluable i mean i mean the fact to think how important was it having your parents there as well
1: it was huge it was really really huge i mean my parents have always been a huge part of my life and i get on with them incredibly well and they've always been incredibly supportive each time i've had a baby they've come and stayed with me for a month to you know help and support and love us um and they were you know amazing being with us for that three-month period um That's September, October, November. I mean, what was also really extraordinary and was really striking to me about where I live here in Cleveland in Ohio was how we'd been here about a year when this happened and all of our um, local neighbors in the blocks around our house for the first two weeks after it happened brought us dinner every single night. Just all got together and most of them we didn't know because we were all you know busy parents going out and about in our days and getting on with our lives. Every day for the first two weeks, a freshly fresh made meal for four adults and two kids was dropped off at our back door. And it was one of those things that was so touching to me. And I remember thinking, you know, if I'd still been in London, yes, I would have had my parents here and they wouldn't have had to, you know, shut up their lives and come there. But yeah. I'm not sure that all of my neighbors around my house in London would have done that same thing. And it gave me a real sense of what it was like to live in a, in a smaller town, in a community where people, the, the sort of what we think of as the Midwest values, that real sense of connection and care. And so it was a combination of those two things that were really key along with, you know, my own self-work and my yoga and meditation that really helped us get through that.
0: Yeah, I mean, that human connection and compassion other mm. well human beings, it's... Yeah. It's, it's, it's in, in many respects, it's lacking in the world of karma, isn't it? Right. It needs a lot more love.
1: <laughs> right, and I think it's one of those interesting things, too. I mean, you know, like you said about my, me being able to step back and reflect, sometimes, you know, it's easier to do it when it's not you. You know, I think if it had been me that had been diagnosed with cancer, I probably would have dived into a lot more self-hatred and, you know, fear. And, you know, whereas when it was my son, you know, I had to step back and look at it and think, how can I support him? How can I be compassionate? And I think that's, I felt that being mirrored back to me in my community from my parents and our neighbours.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have to find that inner strength, don't you, when it's your kids? Mm -hmm. Yeah, have have to, and it's it's it. I mean, I I think inherently as as a mother, it comes more naturally. No disrespect to the dads out there, including myself, but I think <laughs> it's, it, obviously, yeah. you you ladies do the hard work. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get that. You get the bad end of the deal, really, in 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 some respects, if you in in some ways, because it's it's. A lot harder for you. We do. We don't, we don't really. We kind of assist on externally, don't we? we can do all the the bits around, to make, yeah. to make your life a little bit easier, but doesn't always work. <laughs> doesn't always work that way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. No, I mean it was interesting. You know, as we navigated the process. So he, you know, he was the Friday he was diagnosed, and that Friday he had the initial surgery where they took out the tumor, which was by his appendix. they took out his appendix, a chunk of his large and small intestine and reconnected them. And so he came out of the surgery with a nasogastro line in his nose, you know, which was pulling out the food, anything in his stomach, Um, IVs in his arms, um, a drainage tube from the the surgery, which went from his belly button all the way around to his waist, and then an epidural in his back, which managed the pain. And of course, because he was two, he kept trying to pull them all out. You know, it's just crazy, but so then the next few months with with the extra, the surgeries and the chemotherapy and all of the stuff that went on was, you know, I got very familiar with hospitals and the way that I'd never been and all of the different kinds of people who operate in the hospital, you know, the physician's assistant, you know, the techs, the nurses, the doctors, you know, all like, and the people who work in the different shifts. Yeah. And what was really interesting was how they worked. the hospital worked really well with letting us be part of the process. So, you know, uh, they let my ex-husband or I walk into the surgery rooms when he had surgeries, you know, and they let us glove up and and go in, you know, so I got to go into these operating rooms with him and be with him as he fell asleep. Um, And some of the most toughest moments was um, was, you know, when he had to have tests done and he had to have IV lines and stuff put in, and it all got much easier when they put a port in. So they put okay. a metaport in so that he could do the chemo. But um, there were times when they had to still do stuff through IVs, and he would fight this little two year old boy. And he, oh, like, I, he lost 25% of his body weight. You know, he, like, he shrunk down, his hair fell out in clumps. You know, he'd wake up in the morning and go, mama there there are spiders in my mouth and I would look and it would just be clumps of his hair that had fallen out and balled up in his bed you know I mean it just it's heartbreaking but you know often he wanted me you know when he when he had to go through something traumatic you know and so I would have to do this horrible thing of hold him and and support him, but then at the same time, you know, force his arm out or his ankle out so that they could stick a needle in it, you know? And it was, that was, I think, one of the toughest things I found as a mother was, you know, his need for me and my desire to love and protect and be the loving, supportive energy. But at the same time, like, I'm so sorry, baby, but you've got to stick that arm out, you know? You've got to stick that leg out. I'm really sorry they've got to stick a needle in you, you know?
0: Did he... Did he- get used to that as well did he kind of did that sink in Uh, two years old it's kind of you're like every time you get jabbed with something you want to pull away I mean I still do now it's not very nice it's uh... right (laughs) yeah
1: no I mean who likes it although actually I like tattoos so I like it in a different way (laughs) (laughs) yeah no I mean what was great is they had this really interesting charity that was affiliated with the Cleveland Clinic where Jamie went through his treatment which um uh, where where they connect a child with a they connect you with a with a particular person who tracks your child's you know case through the hospital. Okay. And what they do is they is they is they take notes about what your child likes and you know what stresses them out and what you know what they what supports them. And so Jamie's file had. Obsessed with Scooby Doo. Scooby Doo was what Jamie made me <laughs> feel, made him feel good about the whole thing. Like, there's a monster truck episode of Scooby Doo that we watched on loop for like the like the ten hours post first surgery because. And I, you know, on on reflection, I realize I think it's because Scooby Doo, you know, the bad guy always gets revealed as somebody in a suit. Yes. So it was his way of processing the fact that all of this trauma and upset and horribleness, it was all gonna be ripped off and revealed as, you know, a joke or not real, you know? Um, I mean, at the time, I don't think I realized that, but with hindsight, I was like, oh, that's why Scooby-Doo felt like such a safe thing for him, you know? So anyway, Jamie's file had, you know, Jamie loves Scooby-Doo, so every time he came out of surgery or out of a test or out of an anesthesia, you know, they had either a Scooby-Doo coloring book or a book, or a Scooby-Doo soft toy, or a, like a DVD from the library for him to watch, you know. And one of the things they also noticed was that um, all of the doctors wore blue scrubs and and blue, you know, masks and gloves and like things to cover their hair. And that, he, that they would see that when Jamie was on my lap and somebody in blue walked towards him, he would start to tense up. And start to get shouty and like get really you know ready to fight. Yeah. So they so they noticed that and would start to give me the yellow scrubs and the yellow mask and the yellow hat to wear when I would go into the room with him so that they could so that he could distinguish me his mother from you know the evil people who spike him. <laughs> 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 Which was really interesting, you know. That's a and, nice touch. Right. So they were really good at doing that, and they also you know, had a few, there was one guy in particular whose name I'm spacing on now, he was called Big Something like Big George or Big Fred. He was this really huge guy um, who was amazing at putting in the very, very, very tiny IVs that little two year olds need. And he was, you know, he was like one of these, like six foot four, like looked like a football player, like big broad shoulders, you know, but he had the touch. And, the thing that I remember finding really hard was how many of the nurses would tear up and get so upset at how much Jamie resisted. You know, they would come up to try and do a test, even sometimes just taking his blood pressure, you know, because he would just be like, enough already. You know, like, I'm so done with you people touching, <laughs> me, touching me and, you know. Um, and so, you know, they, it was interesting to see there were a few people that really had the skill or had the ability to connect with him. And there was this one guy, this big, big George, I'm going to call him, big George, who just had this way of holding space and having an energy. Yeah. And he, you know, got in, put the IV in super quickly. And then there was another woman who did the night shift, a nurse who was morbidly obese. And I remember feeling so terrible because she, like, she, like she loved her, 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 her patients, like her job was her life, you know, yeah. she, we were there over Halloween and she would make these gift baskets of stickers for all of the kids in the ICU, you know, th- this was her passion. And I remember one night waking up um, next to Jamie and so he had his port in here and when he was in the hospital, they would um, withdraw blood every four hours from the port to test all of his levels, test what was going on with the chemotherapy. And I woke up to see him being coached by this nurse to pull the plunger out himself and withdraw the own blood, his own blood. And it was the most extraordinary thing watching my two-year-old who'd been, you know, fighting and slapping and kicking and pushing all of these people away. Like, don't touch me, you're gonna hurt me, you're here to hurt me. And this woman had this extraordinary calming energy and he was sitting there this little toddler like in his diaper you know sitting in his sitting up in his <laughs> hospital bed you know and this woman was helping him pull the plunger out so that she could take a sample of his blood to go and have it tested i never forgot that image
0: no um, there are some amazing people out there doing exactly what they should be doing
1: yeah
0: yeah nice so nice and it's just just struck me I'm curious actually is there anything that you in that whole experience that you actually learned from your son
1: Hmm. what did I learn from Jamie I think I oh that's a good one I think what was really striking to me about about his response was his initial was how how much he fought it at first you know there was something you know really powerful about his desire to fight back you know do not, res- you know, because, you know, he, he was my much more, um, I, you know, I've got two boys and a girl. My girl was born after all of this. But um, he was much more well-behaved than his older brother. <laughs> you know, he was, <laughs> he, was, he was, you know, he was, you know, the, much more of the sort of rule follower. So I think I was very surprised by how angry he got and how okay. stubborn he was and how much he fought it. And I think with hindsight, what I look at there was it was him just fighting the whole experience of like, this is not something I want. This is not something I want to deal with. This is not something that's going to define me, you know, Um, and he fought and fought and fought and fought against all of that Um, and, you know, resisted. And we had this horrible moment where he'd had his two rounds of chemo. And we were like, yes, we're on the mend. It's all getting good. And they were like, let's take out the port. You know, We don't need any more chemotherapy. I get him home. We're all like, yay, it's time to party. And then he collapses on the floor. And he's in agony and he's in writhing pain. And um, he gets better again. And then it happens again. And I end up rushing him to the ER and he's herniated. And this apparently often happens when you've had abdominal surgery that your, you know, your intestines just kind of (laughs) go and you know and herniate. Yeah. Um, And we had to go through the herniation surgery without a port, and it was so horrible because we got so used to doing everything with the port where you don't have to have IVs which you used to pull out. And I remember going into it thinking, "Oh no, oh no, here we go again." Um, And he fought it again, and like every time they put, he would pull it out and he fight. And the part of me was just like just give it up. Like, don't you understand? We're all trying to help you. Like, we're not being mean, you know? But there was something so beautifully passionate about him just fighting and fighting and fighting, you know? Yeah. That, like, that I never, you know, never let go of. And then um, in the January, so in, at his three month checkup, they did a, um, a PET scan and they thought it had come back in the neck. And the kind of cancer he had was called, it's called Burkitt's lymphoma. And okay. if it's, so it's, it's an inflammation of the lymph gland, it's a blood, it's a blood um, disease like like leukemia. And so the doctor said, if it has come back in the neck, it's probably come back to kill because it's the kind of cancer that when it comes back, it comes back within a year and it comes back super aggressively. And so they did all the, they, you know, they did the ultrasound, they did the MRI, they did the pet, they did the cat, they did all the tests. And then you have this horrible week, where they culture the tests to grade it, you know, and see what kind of cancer it is. And it coincided with my older son's birthday. And we had this horrible thing of like trying to plan for Max's fifth birthday and he's turning five. And you know, and my parents were saying, you know, Jamie shouldn't come because he's, you know, when you've gone through all these rounds of chemo, you know, you're often neutropenic, your immune function is shot, you know, it's January, everybody's snotty and coldy. And I remember having this battle with them and saying, this might be Max's last birthday that he'll get to spend with his brother. You know, if the cancer has come back and it's come back to kill, I want, you know, Max to remember his brother being there at his birthday party, yeah. you know, and I'm having this massive battle to get through that. And he came and we cultured the cancer and it wasn't cancer, it hadn't come back. And, you know, he had, he, they took out the ultra, they took out his um, adenoids and his tonsils, so all of the lymph tissue around his neck. Um, and I remember when he came out of that surgery, it was the day that Obama was inaugurated. Right. And so there was like massive excitement in America. It was like yes, like this huge change. You know, we've got this amazing new liberal president. You know, blah, you know, hope and all of that. And you know, of course, hope was becoming this massive part of my internal dialogue. <laughs> you know, hope, 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 hope. My child's going to make it, and you know, Jamie came out of their surgery and, you know, the throat surgery was, you know, he was in so much more pain than he was with all of the abdominal surgeries. But again, he came back with anger.
0: <laughs> and again, I was like,
1: oh my God. Like, you know, there was part of me that was like, dude, just chill out and like, ah, you know, and heal. The other part of me just respected and loved that feisty theory. Like, I'm going to, Fight this that just bubbled out of this little two-year-old.
0: Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, that that I mean, kids are resilient anyway. Mm. Much more so than than a lot of us as we get become so-called adults. Um, right. <laughs> did you take kind of strength from from his strength as well? and did that, did that kind of help bolster your resiliency through that whole process?
1: Yes, I think it did. I mean, it was an interesting process because. One of the things that I think I found really fascinating and similarly when I went through my divorce was how the people around me reacted to it. And, you know, some of my friends who had children at the same age just stepped back. They couldn't engage with me. Like they literally just stopped being my friend. And I remember at the time being really hurt by this and not really understanding it. Yeah. You know, with hindsight, I realized that they just didn't understand how to process it. And so their only way of dealing with it was just to not engage. Yeah. Um, and what was really extraordinary was the ones who stuck by me through this and the ones who were really there and present got really good at noticing what I needed. And sometimes, you know, people would come in and they'd go, oh, Tam, how are you? And i go, no, just talk to me about the football. Talk to me about the weather. Like, I don't want to sit here and talk about how I feel, you know, like. That's not gonna help me right now, you know. I'm I, I need to be in a place where I can show up and go back into that room and engage with my son and not be a you know a mess on the floor. Okay. And so, you know, I mean, and that was and that was, you know, there was this sort of interesting, you know, sort of toggling between learning how to, you know, get really clear with what you need, you know, and what I needed a lot of the time was was people to not ask me how I was feeling because, you know you feel like shit when you think your son's going to die, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right?
0: Like, yeah, you know? that would fit, I'd say, yeah. <laughs>
1: right? You don't want to always be like, how are you feeling? Well, here? Yeah, oh. <laughs> um, but also, you know, you needed to, I mean, I needed to also really take the time to do stuff that made me feel good. And what was amazing was the yoga studio I was working at, the woman who um, both of her parents had died of cancer, she said to me, look, if you want to teach, teach. If you don't, I'll cover your classes. And after the first three weeks, I was just in the hospital with Jamie. And then I realized that I needed to get out and be part of the broader world and do something that wasn't just, you know, him, 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 him. And going out there and, you know, teaching yoga, picking up my other son from preschool and being engaged in the broader world and doing stuff where I was needed and required and could think about other things was really a big part of that process was learning how to, you know, get that strength so that I could then feed that back to him. Cause it's not, wasn't a one-way thing. Like he was showing me strength by his fight, you yes. know, and I needed to, you know, mirror that back to him, but I also needed to have some softness so that I could hold him when he needed to be held, you know, and just, you know.
0: <sighs> yeah. I. <sighs> It's it's it's. A, I imagine that's a really hard balance to strike because obviously you just want to protect them. You don't want to yeah be in a position to have to put them to get <laughs> jabbed by every doctor in the bloody hospital, and it. Right. But uh, just was it? I mean, the thing that's kind of popped into my head is I would imagine. I mean, obviously. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but was there a, initially was there a certain amount of uh, of, of guilt? I'm just kind of imagining here guilt in terms of ha- taking time for yourself that was absolutely essential because mm. I don't know how you could get through that without actually having some time to yourself or for yourself.
1: Right. right that- so this. Is- That, I mean, it was, it was really tough. And so what, I mean, having my parents there was amazing. And so basically the way I did it was I always had my yoga mat in my hospital room. And so most mornings, so the the way that every four, when you're in the hospital, every four hours, you're getting checked. Every four hours, they want to weigh you, take your blood pressure, take blood. And what was nice was after a few days, I could say to them, no, no, it's midnight. You don't need to wake him up and weigh him. You can take his blood pressure without taking him out of bed. You can withdraw blood and turn them off to the labs. I'm not getting him out of bed and standing him on scales at midnight. You can do that at six. And five years before, I'd have been like, absolutely, yes, if that's the doctor's orders. But after like three or four days in the hospital, I was like, no, fuck you. Like, this is really, like, he needs to sleep, you know? And I got much better at pushing back on that, which was great, or saying to doctors, like, like, don't talk to me like I'm stupid you know, like that used yeah. to drive me nuts too. So I got better at navigating that to support him and support my interactions around that. But the way that I navigated my self-care was by making sure that there was always somebody else with him because I never wanted him to be in a situation where he would open his eyes or he'd be in pain and there wasn't somebody there that he knew and loved and trusted. So most nights, probably four to six, probably like six nights a week, I was with him overnight Yep. And then my mother or my ex-husband would come in in the morning at around 8, 8.30. And they would bring me like an enormous Starbucks, you know, <laughs> like one of those like $5 concoctions. And then bring Jamie an enormous platter of food. Because when you go through chemotherapy, you're, you start to crave very often very salty and very sweet foods. So he would crave like smoked salmon and sausages and really syrupy pancakes. So they would turn up and give me like some massive caffeinated shot and, you know, my son food. And then they would sit with him and watch cartoons while I would go and go for a walk and take a shower. And that that was how I got through that was I had was I knew that he had to be covered so that I could go and do it. So I would do yoga every morning, often at like five a.m. in the hallway when you know nobody else was around, and that just helped me move. But I was right there. Yeah. Um, and then I would go and go for walking. Has always been one of the things that helps me, like process and navigate everything so I walked all over the hospital around the hospital around the grounds of the hospital and that was a really great experience in terms of learning how to navigate that and you know process and digest that
0: yeah I mean that's I would imagine that would have been absolutely crucial to to maintain some kind of a balance not just for you Jamie, for for Max and the whole family, really, because I mean, obviously, your parents are were affected by it as well, and 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 all morphed up in this ball of turmoil, I suppose.
1: Yeah. No, and it was. I mean, what was really interesting too, Simon, was like that. I was how you start to notice, you know, your, you know, what your personal experience is, and how how you kind of compare yourself to others because our, the hospital clinic had a Ronald McDonald house, um, which was for families who, you know, and, and we were really lucky because we lived in town. We were a 20 minute drive from the hospital, you know, and there were some families that had had to drive five or six or seven hours to get there, you know, so they support system was completely different you know we were incredibly lucky um but I would often go there because the some of the rooms that Jamie was in didn't have showers so when my mom or Tony would come in I would you know hightail off to the Ronald McDonald house and have you know a bowl of oatmeal and a shower and often you'd bump into these other parents who were using that space too and um there was one morning I remember sitting down and having coffee with um a mother whose 13 year old son had just had a a steel rod placed up his spine, a mother whose son had had, whose nine year old son had had open heart surgery. And the three of us were all sitting at this table you know, talking about our own experiences. You know, the you know the, the mother whose son had had the steel rod put up his spine. It was you know, would he be paralyzed? Would he ever walk again? Would he have normal mobility? You know, what did this mean for his life? And he was just becoming a teenager, and all the trauma around that. You know, and then the mother whose son had just had heart so, so we're all sitting there, and everyone's going, "Oh, your situation is so much worse." You know, they were like, "But you, your son has cancer. Like, you know, it may come back. It may come back. He's only two." And I was like. I was like, but he's only two. I mean, I can't imagine, like, having a steel rod, like all the physical therapy, you know, and we were were having this really funny conversation where each of us thought that the other person's situation was so much worse.
0: (laughs) It's amazing, the the whole perception of of what's bad. Right, (laughs) right. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a trio of shit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Really... Nobody wants any of that, do they, really, at all, ever.
1: Right, right.
0: I mean, and the beauty of all this is that 10 years on, your son is fine. He's all clear. He's happy, healthy. Yeah. Much bigger.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he is. He is. It's wonderful. We're planning a 10-year party this fall, this September, and we're trying to figure out what would be appropriate and what would not be appropriate. Like, we were thinking it'd be really fun to have, you know, all of, like, the little puddings and the jello pots that you get in hospital, you know, all those refrigerated, horrible, you know, hospital (laughs) But we also kind of like the idea of having IVs full of, like, fruit punch because a lot of the chemotherapy drugs that he was fed were bright red toxic nasty looking things you know and the and the nurses that would give him the IVs full of chemotherapy would like put double glove gloves on and like masks and like all of this like extra physical protection just to handle the bag that was then going to be shot into my son's body you know which is sort of mind-blowing you know and then the poor poor boy would be you know screaming in agony as he urinated out this burning toxic red stuff um (laughs) Oh. <laughs> yeah. but yeah no he is he's he's nearly 12 he's going to be 12 in a few weeks and he's um a yellow belt in taekwondo he's catching up to his brother who's a black belt in taekwondo already he's you know in act like to he's in a local acting school and he's just getting himself an agent because he wants to take it seriously he plays the drums you know he's doing really well like all of his teachers love him and i think you know you, you sort of step back and think you know, what happened and how did we process that? And what was our biggest lessons? I think the one of the biggest lessons I had as a parent was to learn to let go of the little shit. You know, it's so easy to kind of get stuck on the, like, did you brush your teeth before you went to school? Like, and yeah, it's important, you should brush your teeth twice a day. But like, you know, now I'm kind of like, oh, well, whatever, right? You know, or you're going to school and you've got like you know, catch up on your shirt, be like, you know, I like, I frankly don't give a crap now, you know, whereas before that <laughs> yeah. happened, I'd be like, go and change your shirt. You can't possibly go up, go to school without brushing your hair and, you know, having toothpaste or, you know, ketchup up on your shirt, you know, yeah. just that sense of just what's worth fighting over and what am I just going to sit here and, you know, and every day now I just am so thankful, you know, and it was really tough when we got divorced and I had to go through this period of, learning not to be with my children all the time, because as a parent, that's not the way you go into parenthood. Um, and the fantastic advent of modern technology means that I can call and FaceTime and, you know, text my kids whenever they're not with me and connect with them and just, you know, remind them how grateful I am for them, you know, their presence in my life.
0: I mean, what, what is it that's, how has that changed your family? for the for the you know we must have changed it enormously for the better brought you closer together I would have thought Mm -hmm. um what what is it I mean as a family what what have you kind of learned and taken taken from that other than obviously the don't sweat the small stuff
1: well I think one of the other interesting things I've noticed and sometimes I have to sort of catch myself a little bit in but you know my ex-husband and I both have a pretty low tolerance or high tolerance, depending on which way you look at it, for, you know, when the kids are sick. We're like, did your leg fall off? Yeah, you just go to school. <laughs> 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 not cancer. Go to school. <laughs> yeah. You know, so that's sort of like, oh, you've got up. You, you know, you cut your finger. Oh, well, okay, clean it off. Yeah, yeah bandage it up. Off you go. You know, so, you know, we're much less dramatic about physical trauma now. Which, you know, which I think is useful because I think it's very easy in this day and age to become very obsessive about your kids and sort of, you know, overly watch them and parent them and are you doing everything okay? You know, and I think one of the upsides to that experience is that Tony and I have both, you know, stepped back a little bit and they're being like, nah, you know. That's okay, <laughs> you know, that's not such a big deal. Yeah. Um, so I think that was one of the big upsides. And then I think the other upside is that we've all just really learned to, to just tell each other all the time, like, I love you. You're amazing. I love you, you know. I love you. I'm so glad you're here. You're yeah. amazing. I love you, you know, and just because who knows what might happen, you know?
0: Absolutely. I know I, we're very similar in this house in that respect. First thing in the morning... When I wake my kids up, say, "Morning, it's your seven o'clock alarm call." By the way, <laughs> love you.
1: Yeah.
0: And the, umpteen times through the day, it's. I think that's you know for for them to to grow up knowing that they are loved.
1: Yeah yeah
0: it's, it's and hearing
1: scary. it and being comfortable saying it I think particularly because so often there's this sort of ridiculous idea that you know that you know you have to sort of hold it in and you know and be very English and you know or if you're a boy you don't cry or say all that kind of bullshit which yeah. I so yeah. don't buy into you know Uh-oh. and I think you know that's been that's been really good is that it's all just like you know let's talk about it let's cry about it let's tell each other we love each other and that you know and be just grateful for what we have right now
0: uh, I uh, couldn't agree more life's way too short yeah. way too bloody short so if as your parting gift what if anybody listens to this that is going through anything similar what what advice um, and little snippets of joy and happiness would you give them to help them get through it
1: hmm. I think the first thing I would say is, um, you know, which we kind of touched on is let yourself feel, you know, if you need to cry, cry. If you need to go for a walk, go for a walk. If you need to say to people, leave me alone, just be very, get very clear and comfortable with the idea that you can say and articulate what you need, yeah. which is, it can be tough, particularly for mothers, particularly for women, you know, to say like, no, no like I need to do this or you need to walk away. Um, so that's the first, so, you know, being clear with allowing yourself the space to feel and articulate what you need. Um, I think the second is community. The things that have gotten me through these traumatic events in my life that, and my, you know, my, my marriage exploding and, you know, recent horrible hacking experience and stalking experience is community is, you know, reaching out to people and saying, help, you know, When you look at all the research on how people who live the longest, and even if they've got chronic diseases and conditions, the ones who have social connectedness are the ones who thrive. So reaching out to your community and saying, I need help, you know, I did that. When when Jamie was diagnosed with cancer, I hate running. I fucking hate running. But I decided to run a half marathon, 13.1 miles, for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society because I wanted community. I wanted to struggle and like he was and know that I could get through it. And I wanted to do something good. And I raised $11,000, you know, for this charity by doing this. So community, yeah, it was great. You know, never, ever going to run a marathon ever again. (laughs) But I did it. You know, so it's that thing. So find community, find people who are have a common experience with you. You know, whose children are going through, whose parents are going through. You know, people who live near you, mothers, any any overlap. Reach out to those people and say help, because people love to help and connect and support. Um, and um, I think talk about it too. I mean, these are all slightly woven together, you know, in terms of you know the cool. three things. But I think really learning to articulate and whether that's journaling, I blogged. That was when I first started blogging because okay. I found that people kept coming to me and saying, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? And I found it exhausting to kept telling people different variations on a theme. So I thought if I write it down, then I can go, Hey you guys, here it is. But it also gave me a, a, the upside from it was it gave me this massive space to process my feelings. Yep. To process my experience you know in the way that going to a therapist does too but have it creating a space for for that flow to write and talk so yeah so i think you know getting clear on who you are and giving yourself the space to say what you want to need the first second community find people you can connect with and then the third you know writing about it talking about it processing it because if you sit on it it just festers
0: absolutely yeah yeah Absolutely. Listen, Townsend. thank you so much for talking today. It's been, I've loved chatting with you. It's been an amazing story and I'm just so delighted that 10 years on, everybody's happy, healthy and well.
1: Me too. Thank you so much for interviewing me, Simon. It was a real honour and a pleasure and I hope, you know, people can get some benefit and tool out of listening to what we went through.
0: Yeah I have no doubt that uh, anybody who listens to this who's going through anything anything similar will take a huge amount from this so yeah thank you very much My pleasure Take care, take care.